continue today in our sermon series in Matthew called The Good News Kingdom. And we have come out of the birth narratives. We have finally uh, done, in a sense, with Matthew's understanding of Jesus' birth. And uh, we're going to skip about 30 years. Uh, in fact, there's only one story in all the Gospels that speak to Jesus' childhood. That's in Luke 2. But most of them go all the way from his birth and early infancy all the way to the beginning of his ministry. And in Matthew chapter 3 this morning is where we find ourselves, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 together. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who has spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan confessing their sins they were baptizing they were baptized by him in the jordan river this morning i want to talk to you about this phrase repents because the kingdom of god is at hand what is in your mind maybe the most provocative news you've ever heard in your life in your mind, what is the most, or maybe the most amazing news that you've ever heard? I can remember a few things in my life. One of the most amazing things and news in my life is when I found out I was going to have a kid. Now, God didn't end up giving us that kid. But the very first time my wife and I were pregnant, that was like exciting, amazing news. And if you're a parent, you've been there. Or the most amazing news is when your spouse actually said yes. Or they asked you. Like there's been some amazing news in your own personal life, but then if we're to like broaden that out into like a into a broader perspective, what would you say really is the most amazing news in the entire world? I want to talk to you this morning and say that the most amazing, most provocative announcement, the greatest proclamation, the greatest statements. The most amazing news in all the world is this singular phrase, the kingdom of God is here. That is revolutionary. That changes everything. And as Christians, living in the day that we live in, it is more and more important that we be people of the kingdom of God. That we repent because God's kingdom is actually here. And this morning from Matthew chapter 3, I want to look at three things with you about the kingdom of God. I want to look at number one, the definition of the kingdom of God. Number two, I want to look at the nature of the kingdom of God. And number three, the action. So I want to define it. I want to tell you a little bit about it. And then I want to talk to us about the action required for the kingdom of God. So would you pray with me, Jesus, as we 
in a sense, bow our hearts and, and do what Matthew tells us later. We want to seek the kingdom of God above all. But before we long to seek for this kingdom, we need to see the beauty of this kingdom. And so I pray, Jesus, that this morning you would help us even more to see the beauty of the kingdom that you have brought. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look into this particular story, we're introduced to a character named John, as we have called him, the Baptist, right? I mean, too bad for the Presbyterians and the Methodists, they didn't get John, I'm just kidding. He's John the Baptizer, okay? And he's called the Baptizer because of the action that he performs later. And he performs a very specific and important role in the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, you can see that he quotes Isaiah chapter 40 there in verse 3, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. The idea here is that there was prophesied in the Old Testament someone who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah, the servant figure who would come and bring peace and righteousness to Israel for the sake of the worlds. And Matthew here is identifying John as this particular person. Now this individual, John the baptizer, is a very strange person. He is eating your favorite dessert, locusts, okay? And he's wearing your favorite J. Crew clothes camel hair, right? Like, here's the idea, is that this is a very strange man who is the one who is called to actually prepare the way for the Messiah and his ministry. Now again, it, it, this is strange to me, like, if I was God and was going to send my son into the world, I would not do it in all of these, you know, very behind-the-scenes ways and have all these kings be chasing him and sending him away to protect him. And if I were to send someone to prepare the way for my son, I wouldn't be this crazy, weird guy. But why is John this crazy, weird person? Why does Matthew, and I think we need to stop and think for a moment, like, why does Matthew actually take the time, the energy, and the resources, the money that it costs him to write his book to include statements like camels, clothes, and eats locusts? Like, we don't, I mean, paper and writing, and that's like nothing for us anymore. Does that make sense? But back then, this, I mean, you can talk to Luke, he shared more about this, how much it actually cost, but this took time and energy. Why does Matthew record that? Because in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, you can write that down, look it up later, but it's a prophecy that Elijah is going to come again, and he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so here is a, a picture of John the Baptist being just like Elijah. If you know the prophet Elijah, he was in the wilderness, he wore weird clothes and ate locusts. Like you can go and find all of these passages in the Old Testament. And what Matthew is doing is showing you that here is the Elijah who is going to come and prepare the way for the Lord. And this passage, his message is one of this. Pray the sinner's prayer so you can go to heaven. Like, I'm going to come back to this in a few minutes. But we think that the primary message of Jesus is pray a prayer, forget your sins forgiven, so you can go be with Jesus in heaven. 
Like, we think that is the centrality of the Christian faith. But the centrality and the most important message in all of the Bible, in all of Scripture, in all of human history, is this. The kingdom of God has come. The central aspect to Jesus' ministry is all about the kingdom. Matthew uses the word 55 times in his gospel, which Mark is a little bit shorter, but he only mentions it 18 times, Luke 44 times, and John only four times. Matthew is the one who uses this phrase, this idea of the kingdom of God more than any other New Testament author. And so it's important to remind ourselves of what Jesus' ministry actually entailed, what it actually was all about, and not just pull out some part of His ministry and make that central. So as I mentioned before, example, at the risk of oversimplification, but just for exemplary purposes, many people think that Jesus' central message, central purpose was ask and I will take away your sins, and you will live for with me forever in heaven. How many times do you find that in the Gospel of Matthew? We'll, we'll find out over the next 15 years, right? You don't have to remember this question. But I promise you, it's minimal. Does that mean it's not an important doctrine? Don't hear me minimize that doctrine. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to help us to see is that there's something about the forgiveness of sins that have, serves a much greater purpose. And that much greater purpose for Matthew and the New Testament is the kingdom of God. And yet, this produces a quandary for many Christians. Because the Jesus we claim to love, the Jesus we claim to know and to follow, came to bring the kingdom, and we don't even know what the kingdom is. Like if I were to ask you today, please define for me what the kingdom of God is, how would you define it? When we say, seek first the kingdom of God, we're all like, yeah, that's a good thing I'm going to do. But what are we actually seeking? What is this kingdom that is central to Jesus' message that the disciples gave their life to that encapsulates all of human history and we sit here and can't even define it? Isn't that a problem? I think it's a significant problem. If you look at the book of Acts, chapters 1, verses 1, in chapter 1, the verse, verses 1 through 13, Jesus is spending 40 days teaching the disciples about what? How to contextually be really cool in Jerusalem and get this message going and how to start a cool church. What's Jesus teaching them for 40 days? About the kingdom of God. Okay, and I'm going to give you 40 minutes and I'm not even Jesus, so this is woefully inadequate. Anyone know the very last verse in the book of Acts? The very last verse in the book of Acts is Paul is imprisoned and he's teaching people about the kingdom of his Lord Jesus Christ. I find that very significant that the entire book of Acts, the ministry of the early church and the expansion of the church to the ends of the earth is bookended by what doctrine? It begins with the kingdom of God and it ends with the kingdom of God. 
Like, this is not a small thing. This is not just me and my theological mind trying to nitpick and be like, okay, you got to know something cool. No, this is the centrality of the message of Jesus. And the answer to how you define what is the kingdom of God is massively important. It has massive effect on our, the church's, daily witness. For example, I want to say this, there are many Jesuses out there in our society. Anyone on Twitter? A couple of you? If you are, maybe you're like me. I've seen lots of people on Twitter put this week, that Jesus of the people who ridiculously went into the Capitol in the name of Trump and Jesus, I've seen so many tweets say, that is not my what? That's not my Jesus. And I think we want to separate ourselves from that. Does that make sense? But then my natural question is this, what is your Jesus? Who is your Jesus? See, it's really easy to deconstruct. It's really easy to say that's not it. But then to actually have to come over and say what it is is far different, which is why everyone on Twitter and social media just says that's not mine. I have a different one. So what is yours? Do you follow the, the dualistic Jesus, namely that Jesus came to take away your sins and take you away from the evil in this world? Do you follow progressive Jesus, that the evangelical church needs to continue to progress and embrace and adopt and accept everyone? Do you follow conservative Jesus? And the problem is, is that every one of these different strands, I'm just going to call them ideologies, it's a system of way of looking at the world to fix the world, these are what ideologies are, and all these different ways of looking at the world to fix it, they're all taking good aspects of the Bible. Does that make sense? Like, let's just take progressive, and that's because probably very few of us in here are very progressive. But shouldn't the church be more about love than what is often given? Yeah. Now, how they define love, what that love looks like is far different than what we would say is biblical love. But it's like all these different strands. They take like good aspects, and then they build on that at the expense of everything else. And so I ask this question, what Jesus has been constructed in your own heart and mind that you actually claim to follow? Who is the Jesus that you claim to follow? One 17th century philosopher, his name is Voltaire, summarized it this way. I love this phrase. He says, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, right? You know that Genesis 1, he created man in his own image. And then he says this, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. What is he saying? He's saying God made us in our own image, and now because of the fall, because of the sin, we're making God in our own image. We make God out to be who we want God to be. We make Jesus be the Jesus we want him to be. We make Jesus be the one who fits our ideological systems. And that's me too. Does that make, like, don't look at me and say that's not me. Like, that's you. In some sense, we want a Jesus that solves and saves our bigger loves and desires and ideologies that we give ourselves to. So what we need 
is to continue to have the Scriptures continue to refine our understanding of who Jesus is and what He came to do. We all need to continue to be putting the puzzle pieces of who Jesus is together. My aim and prayer is that as we study this Gospel of Matthew, that the one that we claim to love, the one that we claim to love and to follow, we would actually know who He is more and what He came to do and to be about what He's about and to love what He loves and to do what He did. But the difficult part for us as we come into this Gospel of Matthew and study it is that there's a 2,000 year gap between us and Him. Studying 1776 history is hard enough. Does that make sense? Let alone trying to go back 2,000 years. Let alone the cultural differences. In the sense of like, Jesus grew up in what type of home? Suburban white middle class American? Yes. That's why we got long flowing hair with a lamb on his shoulder and European Jesus in all of our pictures. But I mean, Jesus didn't grow up in our culture. He grew up in a completely different culture. And when the Bible speaks to that culture, we bring our culture into that. Does that make sense? And that's normal. But the question is, is when we do that, what are we missing? What are we putting in there that shouldn't be there? What, are, what should be there that's not there? And so when John the baptizer came on the scene announcing the message of the presence of the kingdom, his audience, and if you notice in the passage here, it says people from Jerusalem and all Judea. This wasn't like a little small gathering. He actually began to announce this and people from all over the region came to him. And when he began to preach this, they knew to some degree what he was talking about. So when John brought his message... And it's interesting, <clears throat> his sermon is given to us in one sentence. Um, last week, my kids, after my sermon, they were like, Dad, what were you talking about? It was like, you were talking about Moses and Elijah and a history lesson, and I was so lost. And Owen says, Dad, what were you trying to say? And I said it in two sentences. And he said, well, couldn't you have just said that and sat down? <laughs> so my son wants to be more like John the Baptist. A one-sentence sermon. The kingdom of God is here. When John proclaimed that, what did he mean? And I will, in a sense, introduce this idea to us that will shape and frame the rest of our study of the Gospel of Matthew. But the kingdom of God is defined as this, and I have it, Lord willing, on the screen for you. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God over all of creation which is mediated by His presence. And this reign is enacted by the Messiah as He, Jesus, brings heaven to earth. What is the kingdom of God? It's not a place. Heaven. That's not the kingdom of God. That's where the kingdom of God presently is being expressed. The kingdom of God is not an ethic. That it's like just obedience. The kingdom of God refers to God's reign and God's rule over all the universe. And the way that he actually brings about his rule and his reign is through his presence. 
So why is this, the rule and reign of God over all of creation, why is that the most significant, provocative, politically-minded news in all of human history? Because in Genesis chapter 1, God went on a mission to make the earth his what? His dwelling place. The earth would actually become the place where his presence would reside and dwell. That was always his intended goal. And so he left that up to humanity to create this world so that God could actually come down from the heavens and actually dwell on the earth. The goal was for heaven to come down to earth. The goal was for God to come and be with man. And when God would actually come down and dwell with his people, then God's rule would be perfectly expressed. His reign would come over all of the earth. And yet Adam and Eve failed to bring that about. God's rule, God's reign, God's kingdom never actually made it here. And so this is the whole point of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, that they are to be the place where God's presence resides so the kingdom could actually come through this people. And yet they failed. And so God says, here is one who is actually finally bringing God's kingdom, God's reign, God's rule from heaven down to earth. God is coming to establish His rule on the earth, so let all the nations rejoice. He is coming to establish His righteousness and justice on earth. He's coming to set before all people a table filled with the best of meats and the aged of wine. He's coming to bring joy and peace to all people. This is what the Old Testament is declaring, is that one day, everything is going to be made right. What is the kingdom that John is describing? It's the rule and reign of God, that as God perfectly rules and reigns over everything in the heavens, that perfect rule is going to be expressed right here on earth. And now, in the person of Jesus, that is coming. Can you see why this is the most important announcement in the human history? Is now God is finally beginning to act on behalf of His people. God is finally beginning to act to finish the task that Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and all the great prophets of Old Testament Israel and kings could not do. And yet God now is sending His Son. So, I have a big decision to make. The first point was supposed to be five minutes long, and that was like, what, an hour? Okay. Let me just skip point two and go to point three. My kids are rejoicing. Maybe you are inwardly, and maybe you're mad at me. I'll send you my notes, and you can read them. What's the action? Because that kingdom is finally here, John the Baptist now says this. Repent. Repent. There have been some powerful messages throughout human history. There's been some powerful messages throughout fictional narratives, like the ring of power has been found. Some other important news, like the boy lives. 
Harry Potter? Okay, thank you. That shape massive things. In our culture, the news, the message of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, or the idea, the news that I think, therefore I am. These are all very powerful messages that shape the way we think. And yet there is no more truer, no more powerful message in all of human history than that God is now acting on behalf of all of creation through Jesus and through Jesus bringing His reign and His rule to this earth. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, they're the same thing in the scripture in, in Matthew, and we'll talk about that another time. But the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God has now come. And that is the dramatic day in all of history, that in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God is now here, which means this, the day the world changed, the day the kingdom of God arrived, was not July 4th, 1776. The day the world changed was the day Jesus walked out of the grave. And yet, I think we're in great danger of equating these two. There's a lot of powerful messages vying for our attention, for our affections at this time. This past week, as I've mentioned, we've seen unprecedented evil actions that we should, as a nation, repent of. We should hate this evil. The question is not simply... Do we think this is evil? Yes, that's easy in one sense. The question is, what do we turn to? Where do we go? And if your vision of the world is to return to the past, or if your vision of the world is to long to a better, more progressive future, then there's no hope. There's no Christian witness. What we turn to is very important. And please know right here in Matthew chapter 3, all these people who are coming to listen to John the Baptist, they already had preconceived worldviews of what they would think would save the Jewish people, which is why you had the Sadducees, which is why you had the Pharisees, which is why you had the Essenes, which is why you had the Zealots. All of these different groups all had their own ideas of how the nation of Israel could be saved. And what's going on in our culture today? You got your Republicans, you got your progressives, you got your libertarians, you got all these people who have all of their ideologies that say this is what's going to save our country. And what's John's message? Repent of all of that crap. Because something better is here. The kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom that God is now going to express His rule, He's going to come and be with His people, is now being prepared. I am preparing the way for this new kingdom. See, all of these, what I'm going to call anti-kingdoms, are being ruled behind the scenes by the God of this world. And when the church gives its affections to these different camps, these different ideologies. And it's not that you can't belong to one of those. Does that make sense? Can we just, like, you're like, I'm a Republican. Can I not be a Republican? You can be a Republican and be a Christian. Does that make sense? I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if our vision and our hope for the future is tied to one of these things outside of the kingdom of God, we are missing it. 
these kingdoms are being ruled by Satan. Make no mistake. He is behind the scenes operating and working his plans out. The church should give no affections, ultimate affections, ultimate attentions to the kingdoms of this world except for the point to be light in darkness. This is why John says we're in it but not of the world. I hear a lot like we're called to, we should be praying for our president, right? Doesn't the Bible tell us to pray for our kings and our rulers? Do you know why? This is interesting. Anyone know? Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, by the way, pray for all your kings and rulers. Do you know why he says to pray that? Anyone finish the verse for me? This is like Ephesians 4.32. It's like, be kind to one another. I'm like, okay, good. Do you know why? Because God has been kind to you. That's what the rest of the verse basically says. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, where Paul actually tells uh, the church at Ephesus through Timothy to pray for the leaders, the rulers, the kings, the emperors. He says this, Pray for them that you may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Church, can you live a peaceful, quiet life today in godliness and holiness? Maybe not every people in America, but most of us can do that, right? So why are we so angry about everything? Why are we upset about everything? Why does every decision out of Washington just ruin our day? Okay, I'm, I can't answer this for you, but I would just ask you, is it because there's some idolatrous thing in your heart that you are not getting what you want that is actually anti the kingdom of God? Could it be? I'm not saying it has to be. Because Matthew wants to make sure that we come back to the central message that the kingdom of God is reigning over the forces of this world and the church is called to seek this rule in this reign. The church can seek the kingdom of God, I want you to know, in any society. The church has thrived in all sorts of different political structures. The church can actually seek the kingdom regardless of what is happening in our society. And don't hear me say we don't fight for justice and equity. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, like, can we just come back and say, what are we going to live for? I want to be a people that seek the kingdom of God, His rule and His reign. And John the Baptist is the one who is beginning to prepare the way for the announcements of this man, of this Messiah, Jesus. And so in a sense, <clears throat> this week, he's announcing in Matthew 3, 1-6, salvation. He's announcing that here comes someone who's going to bring rescue. Bring rescue to the world, bring rescue to your relationships, bring rescue to your relationship with God. He is going to bring righteousness on the earth. Hope will fill the earth. Uh, uh, you know, joy will fill the earth. But next week, we're going to see a second part of the kingdom of God's message. It's not just salvation, but it's judgments. Because salvation and judgments go together. So would you pray with me, Jesus? has been a, a, a jumble, in a sense, of a bunch of different thoughts. Uh, but I, 
would just pray that you would help us as we, not just today, but as we go throughout the book of Matthew to see the, the centrality of the kingdom of God. That in Jesus, your rule and reign has been brought to us so that we can experience your presence and to feel your peace and to know your joy and to experience your love. So God, help us to be people who seek the kingdom of God and your righteousness first. First. And so Jesus... We thank you that in your selfless love you brought that kingdom to us. And we look forward to the day when you'll come in power and glory and restore that kingdom in its fullness in a new world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.